We are in a series called Life's Biggest Questions. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. I am not a fisherman. I've never gone fishing out on a boat where they're trying to reel in a big fish. But I have images of that now that I live out on Oceanside Turf. Maybe I can get a chance to do that sometime. But with this series, as I felt led to put it on the horizon, saw it coming, I felt like there is no way that I can reel in the importance of this series, the breadth of the questions, the depth of content that need to be spoken into each of these. I still feel that way this week, that it's too big of a fish to reel in. We looked at origin last week. Where did we come from? Why does it matter? Today we look at meaning. Why am I here? What's God's purpose for me? Is there a God? And I'm not quite sure where you're at on your spectrum of belief, your spectrum of experience. But I do know this, that you can go deeper, you can plunge into the heart of understanding in ways that maybe you've never challenged your brain. Sometimes when you haven't used your brain for a while and you use it on deep thinking and try to contemplate stuff, you sort of get you get calluses, right? You're not used to using it. But God wants you to take these kinds of questions, investigate them, bring your doubts, your insecurities, your disbeliefs, as well as your aspirations to grasp and to understand. And he wants to impart to you truth and understanding. This is my firmest belief. That's why I take something like these big questions on. We mentioned last week that your worldview makes a world of difference in everyday life. And your worldview is framed up by your answers to the four questions, where did I come from? Why am I here? How do I know good from bad? And where am I going? And if you don't have answers for those, then you're just moving through an existence in life. And as you move through an existence in life, I guarantee you at some place, at some point, you're going to become discouraged. And you're going to say to yourself, is there not more than this? So because I'm trying to reel in a big fish again today, will you pray with me? God, we truly attune ourselves to your spirit who speaks to us. Your word, Jesus says, that you, sent, you would send your spirit to impart to us truth. That your Holy Spirit would be a helpmate. That your Holy Spirit would be a comforter. That your Holy Spirit would convict us. That your Holy Spirit would come and be our guide and our teacher. And so we need your Holy Spirit in these kinds of moments because one mere follow of yours trying to merely explain what is of infinite, infinite understanding is truly impossible without your presence. So, Lord, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever invested yourself in a work activity? Maybe it was an assignment you were given. Maybe it was a job that you were to do. And after you labored for a significant amount of time doing it, you saw that there was no value in it. In other words, all your work was for not. Why did I do that? What became of that? And you 
can get discouraged. I remember the very first time this happened to me, I was a young boy, probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 11, somewhere around there, growing up on a large grain farm, and we would raise corn and soybeans. Now, you're probably familiar with corn stalks, maybe you're not familiar with soybeans. Soybeans, plants grow about, you know, maybe three feet high at the most, and um, there's all kinds of things you do with soybeans. So, in our fields of soybeans and corn, you would want them to look well, I don't know why, to God, to the community. And if you rotated your crops from corn to soybeans every other year, and that's a good practice to do, then you would inevitably find in your soybean field some corn stalks growing from the prior year because corn fell to the ground, it started to grow. I remember there was a field right across from our home, and so you had to look out at at that field every day of your life. And so as a young boy, I saw the nice beans coming up. But then before you knew it, this nice spread green bean field turned into what's called succotash. (laughs) Just a hodgepodge combination of different things. Because before you knew it, there was some weeds and there was corn from the prior year growing, shooting up. And I went, oh, that looks like a terrible bean field. Well, Guess what the solution was pre-Roundup days? Roundup was actually created for this kind of thing where it would let the broadleafs, the soybean, live, but it would kill the corn in it and the the other uh, weeds that might have grown. Your dad gave you a hoe, and he says, well, go do something about it. I remember I spent several days out in this field across from our house hoeing out all the corn. That wasn't supposed to be grown in the bean field. And after a few days, I stepped back and I said to myself, whoa, that looks great. My mom and dad even complimented me. Care, you made those, and it was, I think, a five, ten-acre field. You made that five, ten acres. That looks great. Thanks, thanks. Well, life went on, and a couple weeks later, guess what? There was more corn coming, and it looked like a succotash field again. And I said to myself, I will never get out there and hoe again. Because why? It was a waste of time. All that I did. Now look at it. That was meaningless. That was just foolish to do. And I never, ever did go out and hoe in a bean field again. Praise God that Roundup came along. And now they spray those fields, right? Now, you tell me. What have you been doing? Maybe it wasn't when you were younger. Maybe it was this very week that caused you to come to a place that said, why do I do this? What a waste of time. This is meaningless. This week I had the opportunity um, to take a graduate class up at uh, Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. So I was up there all week. My, my brain's a little fried from that. It was an intensive class all day long. And I stay with my son who lives in uh, Sherwin, uh, Sherman Oaks, uh, uh, Van Nuys area. And so I traveled back and forth. And I had the beautiful experience of being in L.A. traffic every morning. Some of you live in this world. God bless you, folks. I'm surprised that you come to church on Sundays. I wouldn't want to get back in a car and go anywhere, Right? Traffic wasn't all that bad, I guess, necessarily. But you, you try to figure it out. Okay, so I get up. I, I, I brave just getting in the car, bump and go, bump and go on the 101, those kinds of things, making my way. And, you know, you get up, 
for me, I was going to school this week, but you get up, you go to work, you come home, you watch some TV, go to bed, get up, go to work, you come home, you watch some TV, you go to bed. Next day, you get up, go to work, brave the same traffic, come home, watch some TV, go to bed. And uh, weekends, why you party on the weekends? Same routine, starts again the next Monday. And you start to find yourself living in a monotonous cycle, and you go, is this all there is? Why do I do this? In the scripture, there was a uh, very famous, I mean, you're talking top escalon of popularity, notoriety, power and everything. A very famous individual who was gripped by this issue of meaninglessness. Why do we do this? Why do we go to work? Why do we make an income? Why do we buy things? Why do we collect? Why do we seek this and seek that? His name was Solomon. And Solomon was known as an extremely wise man, a leader, teacher. Solomon, he had all the wealth you would want to have. He had a lot of it. Solomon had all the wisdom and the learning you could comprehend. Solomon had all the women. And he had all the women. A lot of women. He had all the palaces, all the gardens you'd ever want to have. He had all the fine wine and food, and all the entertainment possible. That was the life he lived year in and year out. But as Solomon began to sit back and ponder, we find these words in the book of Ecclesiastes. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, and the ruler in Jerusalem. Everything is meaninglessness. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work? Generations come and go, but nothing really changes. The sun rises and sets, then hurries off again around to rise again. Everything, it says, is so weary and tiresome. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Now, for you to get a gist of his heart and his burden and his weariness, and you're saying, like, this guy's having a bad day. Well, I don't know that he's really having a bad day as much as he was having a very thoughtful life in the later season of years. Maybe you've not read a book of Ecclesiastes recently. It's not the most encouraging, positive thinking, let's go charge the hill kind of book. But I want to continue reading in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, and I want you to catch the flavor for the disposition which he has. Because maybe you're not in this particular place today, but I guarantee you what, somebody living around you, somebody working beside you, somebody that you're seeking to be a friend to, may very well find themselves in this kind of disposition, and God wants you to understand their heart. 
Verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 1, it says, History merely repeats itself. It, has been, it all has been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. What can you point to that is new? How do you know it, is, it didn't already exist long ago? We don't remember what happened in those former times, and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. I, the teacher, was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to searching for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done in the world. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. Everything under the sun is meaningless, like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be righted. What is missing cannot be recovered. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I worked hard to distinguish wisdom from foolishness. But now I realize that even this was like chasing the wind. For the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. I said to myself, come now, let's give pleasure a try. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too is meaningless. It is silly to be laughing all the time. I said, what good does it do to seek only pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. While still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I hope to experience the only happiness that most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find myself find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned great herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who lived in Jerusalem before me. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. And with it all, I remained clear-eyed so that I could evaluate all these things. Anything I wanted, I took. I did not restrain myself from any joy. I found great pleasure in in hard work and an additional reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So I decided to compare wisdom and folly, and anyone else would come to the same conclusions as I did. Wisdom is of more value than foolishness, just as light better than darkness. For the wise person sees while the fool is blind. Yet I saw that wise and foolish people share the same fate. Both of them die, just as the fool will die. So will I. So of what value is all my wisdom? Then I said to myself, this is all so meaningless. For the wise person and the fool both die. And in the days to come, both will be forgotten. I position Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10 and 11. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. 
Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Well, now that you've been cheered up, we can pray and go home. Remember I said last week the statement, I mean, how would you answer the statement, I wish I knew then what I know now. If I had, I would. There's a professional athlete that had scaled to the heights, winning championship in his profession. And the statement was, I wish I'd known that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. I wish I'd known that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Now, it's not that there isn't great things in excelling and exceeding. And wasn't that a great Monday night championship game for those of you who watched NCAA? Last second shot, that was great. Anyway, you're exuberant when you reach the top. But if you live in a very naturalistic only world, a world of just mere naturalism, You too, no matter what course you're on pursuing now, you may be pursuing an education, you may be pursuing a great uh, uh, relationship that you hope becomes a marriage and you have a great family, you may be pursuing uh, being able to excel in your workplace and take on the next position and the next position and the next position. You may be looking at some other kind of dimension in life of being able to have a startup company or something. If I can get this off it's, it, the ground, it's going to go well. You may be pursuing, um, I don't know, something in retirement. Even if you're retirement, I'm, I'm pursuing. Right Before retirement, you're pursuing some equity to be able to go into retirement, right? And in retirement, there's always something looming on the horizon. But here's a man, a king greater than any other king of knowledge and wisdom at that time in Jerusalem, who had aspired to it all, and when he got to the top, he realized that there was nothing there. It's said that the loneliest moment in life is when you've experienced that which you thought would bring the ultimate to you, and it's let you down. The loneliest moment in life is, that, is when you've experienced that which you thought would bring the ultimate to you, and it's let you down. I think there's a lot of lonely people in the world. You may find yourself in that place today because the pursuits are like chasing after the wind. Meaningless. Meaningless. Now, you don't want to admit that. I don't want to admit that time because we want our lives to be filled with meaning. And so if life is meaningless then it's going to head us into trajectories that are not very good. And for some people, they take their very life. But that's not what you were created and intended to be from Scripture. So I position this to you with infinite longings and infinite capacities. You need more than pleasure, stuff, and fame to find meaning. Now catch the first part of that. You and I have infinite longings. We long. We, we long for meaning. We long for beauty. We long for experience. We long to be uh, fulfilled in life. Inside of us, we are wired with these longings that are infinite, but we have these finite capacities that can never fulfill that infinite longing 
of our heart. So we find ourselves in a quandary. But the first thing you and I need to reckon with in this whole pursuit of meaning, why am I here, what's my purpose, what's my existence, is to acknowledge that we are created differently than the animal kingdom. I don't think there's a lot of dogs going around going, wow, I am just so underfulfilled in my life. Maybe your dog is, I don't know. But they're animals of instinct. Yes, they can bond and they, and they can give affection and those kinds of things. But the human being is crafted with longings in the heart that go far beyond anything of a natural order. But we have these finite capacities, and in these finite capacities, um, we have a gap. And that gap can bring angst. Do you know what happens in this Ecclesiastes book if you read through it? You continue to get overwhelmed and depressed. But he comes to the end, and this is what he says at the end. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, he says, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. For this is everyone's duty. Is that it? Is that? Did that get you right? You are not reeling in a big fish this morning, Bowman. That's pretty simple. Just to fear God and obey his commands. Well, we could spend the whole morning and more mornings unpacking all that kind of thing. But the fear of God is not a trembling. Oh, my gosh, he's going to beat me up like maybe you grew up with thinking that God was mean. The fear of God is a reverential fear and awe. Your infinite longings have a desire for grandeur, for greatness. That's because you and I are made in the image of God. And in the image of God, we were created for meaning. Because He put meaning in all of His creation. So the fear of God is a heart that's turned and endeared towards God. And to obey His all commands. There's a plethora of commands all over the Scriptures. But His commands are not to destroy your joy and your hope and your ultimate sense of meaning. It's to bring about that sense of meaning and fulfillment. His commands are not boundaries to ignore because he's keeping you from something on the other side. They're boundaries by which we find freedom inside. And they may be commands that say, stay clear from this, do this. But the king had everything. Wealth, wisdom, women, palaces, wine. He said, this is what it comes down to. You need to fear God. And you need to obey His commands. Everyone's duty. Now last week, we looked at the question of origin. Where did it come from? I encourage you to listen to that. You can listen to it online or get that app and listen to it. We discussed a couple theories for God's existence. Big words. The cosmological argument. And then the design argument. That has another bigger word to it I didn't mention. I am mindful that when you come to position this statement, I am in a very um, accepting kind of environment here to talk about God. But just the mere belief in God does not go very far with some people. And maybe you're challenged with a belief in God. 
if meaningfulness in life comes from fearing God and obeying his commands, then I've got to start with, do I believe in God? Well, one additional argument for God's existence I want to position with us here in a moment is that of the experience argument. The experience of God and people's lives, but also the experience of a heart that's longing to know that there's something more. Oh, there's the Imago Dei made in the image of God. Last week we looked at a couple of video clips from the RZIM ministry related to the existence of God. We'll add this one to it today, the experience argument. Is it there? I'll give you a second. Well, then you're going to have to watch it another day. If not, that's okay, Joe. Let me move on and bring the house lights back up. This idea that we were crafted by an eternal God, longings placed in our heart, moves us to try to understand all that that entails, the picture frame, the worldview. So I position this to you. You are positioned in the universe as a meaningful being lovingly made by God for God's glory with God's unique imprint and for God's purposes. That context, that world view, that framework has to be deeply ingrained, not only in your psyche, but in your heart. That you in this whole universe that could be meaningless, everything meaningless underneath the sun. That this position you've been giving, given has come about from a loving being. And you have been created for not your own glory, but for God's glory. God has given a unique imprint to you, and he has purposes for you. That's why the writer said, here's his final end of the story. Fear God and obey his commands. But behind that is the grander understanding. If you walk away from this understanding, you will walk into a path of meaninglessness. Because you are not an infinite being. And anything you do will not last beyond you. And you will find emptiness. It says this in... Matthew 22, concerning what we are to do. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now that's known as the great commandment, right? And out of the great commandment, we pull two things, the loving of God and the loving of other people, the loving of your neighbor. 
Jesus came back and gave another command, one of these commands that we are to obey. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The other one is known as the Great Commandment. This is known as the Great Commission. Jesus sending them out. You can sum up all the commands, Jesus says, not with just one, love God, but love God and love others. And then he went and gave the Great Commission, which he exemplified what it really means to be invested in loving others. And he said, make disciples. So these three things, love God, love others, and make disciples. Some of you have heard this before, to ad nauseum. But you will find your meeting right there in life. To fear God and to obey his commands, to be awestruck by who he is and to climb into not only a knowledge of him, but an experience of him, into a personal relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, and then to take up the very work that Jesus Christ did, which was giving honor and glory to God the Father, but then loving other people one at a time and reaching out and then making disciples, followers of God. You invest your life in loving God, loving others, and making disciples. It leads you to the sense of meaning and fulfillment that God intends for your life. You know, I, um, you ever do people watching? Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's like a little sketchy. Well, I had a couple of little moments this week where I was in a fast food place and I had some time to kill as well as maybe to do some study and that kind of thing. And, and the first experience was in a Burger King. It was late night. They were getting ready to close it down. I was in there because my uh, son hadn't gotten off work yet. And I knew the moment that I went to sit down at my seat, I probably should have sat further away than where I was. There appeared to be a discussion going on between a mom and a dad and I think a 15-year-old. But it really wasn't a discussion as much as it was turning into a berating of the 15-year-old for something that he had done. And I wasn't like eavesdropping. It was all over the restaurant, and there was only just a few of us in there. I felt for the young man. It was his mom and his dad, but his mom and dad had been divorced. And she was berating him for something he had done. And finally, she turns the conversation for her dad, for his dad to chime in and support her, and he turns on the mother and basically starts to unload some of his baggage about the way she is and why they're divorced and that she's not giving him a chance. Well, it quickly at that point turned into a bit of an explosion and they were all out the door now for my peace and sanity i was very thankful but i wanted to follow the 15 year old out the door because of the environment that he was in and it made me think well does he have anybody not a judgmental statement here but anybody pointing him to what it would mean to find meaning by loving God. And how does he love his parents in the midst of such challenging crisis? And he could have done something really, really bad for all I know, right? 
And will he find his way to discovering what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or will he too, like many people, and maybe you, spend years upon years upon years going down a path, maybe of a broken home, disenchantment, beating himself up because, you know, he wasn't doing something right, and he too will find himself going as the scripture said, this is all meaningless, this is waste. You and I have a responsibility to unpackage for people where our meaning comes from because we are made in the image of a meaningful God. That was interesting because two days later, I was in a McDonald's for a breakfast. And I was there, my laptop plugged in, I was going away, I was in the corner, and there was another mom and dad and a three-year-old girl. And I really wouldn't have noticed them too much, but, you know, I was only a table or two away, and and the three-year-old kept looking up and looking at me, like, sir, why are you here with all that stuff? This is an eating place. It's not, you know, a school. But she'd look up, and I'd smile back at her. Her mom was teaching her all kinds of things. And you could see the bond between the mom and the daughter. And the dad would come and go, and as they ate, she was explaining. I mean, she was explaining that it was going to be, you know, something about the weather, and it was going to be cold. And I really wanted to go over to the little girl and say, you don't know what cold is. You know, know, cold for a few days. But I said to myself, now there in that nurturing environment is a mother who's teaching value and importance to an individual. And when they walked out the door, I didn't think to myself, oh, I want to go encourage that little girl because... No, I said, she's got a good, loving set of parents that interacted with her. But we are raised in life many a times not to understand the full meaning and the purpose and the value of who God has made us to be. But you and I are positioned in the universe as meaningful beings, lovingly made by God for God's glory with his unique imprint and for his purposes. And so our meaning is found in the context of that. Now, having said that, I want to position another truth to you. And it's this. Wonder, truth, beauty, and love are key nourishments to a sense of meaning and purpose. We'll read Psalm 8 in a little bit. Wonder, truth, beauty, and love are key nourishments to a sense of meaning and purpose. Scripture says that all things are lawful for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, there are restrictions on that at times, but it's for the purpose of your freedom and my joy. All things are lawful and all things uh, are expedient. Uh, All things are lawful, but you should not be overcome or mastered by any of them. And all things are lawful, but all things edify or encourage other people. You as a child of God, if you are seeking God and a lover of God and you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple of him, guess what then happens with this world? It's all open back up to you. You now have a framework, a context for understanding it because pursuing beauty, pursuing a sense of wonder, pursuing enchantment, pursuing, you know, even financial gain and wealth to be able to prosper a family or prosper others is not wrong because it's in the context of who God's made you to be. When he made you and I, he created us in his image and he said, now I want you to rule, subdue and have dominion over the earth. That means he put within you and I the desire to accomplish, to build, 
driving around Los Angeles. There's some other bigger buildings going up now. And, and Pasadena, a lot more uh, uh, apartment buildings and those kinds of things. It's like, well, let's get at it. Let's make things happen. That's not meaningless as an end in itself when we are dialed into the grander purpose. So wonder, truth, beauty, love are key nourishments to bring about a sense of meaning and purpose. And so as I participate from week to week, maybe it's a job, maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's in a sport, maybe it's nothing, then I start to have this beauty that wells up within me. And I look around and I say, that's incredible. That's incredible nature. That's incredible in the face of a three-year-old child with the mother. That's incredible that God's put within me the ability to learn this knowledge, to be able to spit it back out, to be able to frame up and write uh, a narrative, write prose, write poetry, whatever it may be. Then all the things that God's made in this world start to find their place because they are not your means to some greater end that's very self-serving, but they are actually means of worshiping the God who created you with these kinds of capacities. And so you enjoy his pleasure. Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man, any of you guys know what this is? Is to glorify God and to enjoy his presence forever. The chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy his presence forever. So I take great delight when I see each of you using your gifts and your abilities and your talents, developing things that God created you to do. I say, get at it. That's an act of worship. Looky there. They're taking off, man. They're on trajectory. They're a great entrepreneur. Look at that. Well, they're a great, beautiful artist, whatever it may be. But we oftentimes overlook all then the wonder and the beauty and the things around us or the things and the gifts that we have. Let me read this Psalm 8. It says this. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in motion in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Now, what's the psalmist doing there? He's worshiping. He's fulfilling his purpose to glorify God and enjoy his presence. But it's in the context of fearing God and obeying his commands. And he steps back and he goes, wow, how incredible is all that? How incredible is all that? But what happens to us over the course of time as we age, we lose our sense of wonder and we become dulled. I remember an early um, a teacher in my life speaking to me and saying, Carrie, you need to learn this early on, that life has a natural dulling effect. The longer you live, the more hardened, callous, routine you become. But think of a child. Why are we endeared to children? Because a lot of times it's their sense of wonder. All right? 
I'll give you an example. This example, another example that I've carried with me for years. Let's take a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and maybe a one- or two-year-old. And you sit with them and you tell them a story. And you pull in the seven-year-old and you say to the seven-year-old, they got up. They walked to the door. They opened the door. At that moment, the seven-year-old gets wide eyes. And they opened the door and there was a dragon. You take the four-year-old. Their sense of wonder, they got up, they walked to the door, and they opened the door. And the eyes fill with wonder. And you take the one or two-year-old, and all you need to say to them was, they got up and walked. The older we get, the more it takes to fill our life with a sense of wonder. And I believe many people are bored and consider meaninglessness in life because they don't see the wonder and the beauty and the love and the truth that is all around them. Joshua Bell was a great, uh, was a great violinist. Um, Forget, I knew I'd forget the name of a Stradivarian violin, a million-dollar violin. He would fill concert halls with this violin, the majesty of it. They did an experiment, and they put him on the subways in Washington, D.C., just waiting on subways and to see if anybody would give heed to what he was doing. He sat there in that subway and he played the same songs that he played in the big concert halls that were filled. The people were on there. Phones texting, talking to people. Nobody stopped to listen and observe the beauty of what he had created. How many times are we just blowing through life, created in the image of God, and we don't catch the wonder and the beauty and the truth and the love that's around us. You see, the reason that mom in the McDonald's captured my heart was I sat there and I said to myself, and I'm studying this, of course, and I'm thinking to myself, that's incredible. Look at the beauty of that mother endearing herself to the heart of her child and the innocence of a child just looking to her mom and learning from her. Who did that? Who made that? Oh, it just happened. Particles came together, blew up, you know. Voila, here we are. God created it. And so I want to encourage you to capture the wonder, truth, beauty, and the love of life by seeing God in the world around you and all that He's creating. This is my last statement to you this morning, and we'll close. Happiness is not the goal of our lives, but the byproduct of a life lived in communion with Jesus Christ and for his purposes in our world. Happiness is not the goal of our life, but happiness can come as a byproduct when we are seeking to love God, love others, make disciples. 
And as we pursue that, to live in communion with him, then we will find meaning and purpose in ways that we could have never defined. Friends, you don't have to go back to Solomon. You can talk to rich people today. You can talk to famous people today. You can talk to people that you think have made it on the stratosphere of of accolades in our world. And you will find, often at times, the sense of meaninglessness. Because without God, without the framework of his world and what he's doing, there go you too. I wish I had known then what I know now, that when you get to the top, there's nothing that's there. These verses, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. A scattering of other verses, John 10, 10, of course, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I close by reading a quote from Malcolm Muggeridge. I read a quote from him last week. He's a famous British journalist. He says this, I may, I suppose, regard myself as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough money to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the Eternal Revenue Service. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of friendly diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by millions Add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, indeed a positive impediment measured against one drop of the living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. You add these all up, and it's nothing compared to one drop of that spiritual vitality and communion that you can find in Christ. You can live at a survival level. You can choose to try and live at a success level. But ultimately, you need to choose to live at the significance level. And the significance begins with that relationship with Christ and then serving his purposes. Will you pray with me? Lord, I know not where the road leads for really any of us in this room. Other than I know that ultimately it's a road that leads to standing before you in your presence someday, as the scripture says. And I pray for each one of us in this room that we will rightfully choose a road of loving you loving others, 
and fulfilling your purposes of making disciples of all people. Lord, there are some here who they would say they're in survival mode. I pray, God, that you would just encourage them. Maybe they've been seeking to love you and love others, but things are just heavy on their hearts this morning. May you minister your grace through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, may they find the beauty and the wonder and the truth around them in ways that maybe they never saw before because their lives have been consumed with the urgent, paying the bills, making do in a relationship. Jesus, find that person in this room and encourage them through your very spirit right now. Lord, there's others that are in a success level and they're really fine and doing pretty well. Lord, I know that they too one day will meet you face to face and I pray that they will receive that great uh, affirmation from you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. But Lord, may all that they do in word and deed be done for something greater than just mere success. May they move to the significance level and choose to live in that realm fulfilling your purposes, giving you the glory, honoring you in all things. Lord, may we, as a body of people, this church, may we just not go through the motions, but may we too find ourselves living a life.